1: everyone, this is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And my guest today is Lily Cushman. Hello, Lily. Hello, nice to be here. Thanks. So I'm going to read your bio before we dive into what I can only begin to imagine is going to be an enthralling and entertaining conversation. (laughs)
2: Lily
1: and I were just saying before we started how we're both really tired right now. So sometimes I can make for magical moments.
2: It's going to, yeah, it's, we're going to go somewhere for yeah. sure. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm.
1: So Lily is the co-founder and director of the Brooklyn Yoga School, a donation-based yoga center voted Best of New York by New York Magazine in 2011. She has been teaching yoga for 10 plus years and practicing daily sur- since her teens. She currently serves as the executive assistant to meditation teacher and New York Times best selling author, Sharon Salzberg no big deal there and has worked for world-renowned chanter krishna das again no big deal for many years a longtime musician herself lily found a natural home in the practices of bhakti yoga chanting mantras in the traditional call and response style of northern india it has since become a foundational part of her practice and for nearly a decade she has regularly led chanting events in the greater new york area in 2014, Lily created the Venaris music record label to facilitate kirtan and spiritual music recordings and live events. For more, visit www.lilycushman.com, and that link will also be added on whatever page you're viewing this from. So, Lily, again, hello. Hi. Oh,
2: hey.
1: Thanks for being with me today.
2: I think you can just read the bio and we're set, right? I, pre- <laughs> You know,
1: I've actually said <laughs> verbatim that to people before. That's all you need to know. All right. Peace. (laughs) Um, No, but as I was also telling Lily before we started this conversation, she and I run into each other at various events. And when we're at those events, we're very busy. And it's always like, yeah, let's find time to chat. And then that time never comes. But here we are in a podcast. So we have that time to chat. So even if it's a selfish um, podcast this time around, (laughs) let's do it. No, but really... So what I wanted to start out with, just very simply, because I don't know this about you, minus what little I've, I've read and heard through mutual friends, but talking about your path, what got you on the path, what brought you there, and what that looked like for the first few or several years. Yeah.
2: Well, I, um, I started kind of early. I actually, um, <clears throat> when I was my first year in college, I really was kind of trying to figure out how to take care of myself. And, you know, this was like the mid-90s and um, you could kind of go to a gym or run, but it, it felt to me like those methods were, were pretty, um, I don't know, they were really tuned into things that actually kind of made me feel bad about myself and were only about like looking good.
0: Gotcha. Um,
2: so I was really looking for something more to figure out how to be in school and I was doing a pretty intense program at school. So, um, it was lots of like late nights and as are many college experiences. So, um, a mentor of mine actually recommended yoga and, um, she told me to get this, um, VHS because that's what happened then.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm right there with you.
2: Yeah. Um, of, it was like a, a yoga journal, beginner yoga series. And at that point, yoga journal was like, I mean, it was in color, but it was not anything it was today, right. you know. Um, so I got this VHS, and uh, something just really clicked for me. Like, I dabbled with it maybe that first month, and within that period of time, I just figured out right away, it was like, I need to do this every day. This is really good for me. And um, I was not, like, an athletic person by any means. Yeah. Like, um I'm quite tall. People always ask me if I've like played basketball or now they're like, Oh, were you a dancer? No, I was that person in my family who like rode my bike around our driveway once a year (laughs) where like the rest of my family was like training for marathons and things like that. So, um, when I first started, it was like, um, I like told everyone, you know, because it was like just such a big deal for me to do that. And, uh, gradually it just became something that um, I would just roll out of bed and kind of roll onto my mat. Yeah. And um, I did that for for a long time, actually. And um, it really wasn't until later that I realized, um, as I started to interface with other people who had practices of different kinds, that that was quite an anomaly to be able to maintain a daily practice like mm-hmm. that. But something about it just really... Um it really clicked, and I had this sort of feeling like I was in training for something
0: mm-hmm.
2: um and um those ensuing years I went through uh, of college, I went through a lot of um different things, my mother passed away, there was a lot of turmoil in my life, mm-hmm. and I gotta tell you like that daily practice was just that was a really big deal for me like. Mm-hmm. I hung on to it really for dear life. Um, When I finished school, I moved to New York. I moved here like the week before 9 11 and separated from my like longtime college boyfriend. So there was a lot of upheaval at that time as well. And I don't know what, where the, the like, um, where it came from in me, but I just was able to practice every day. And it became, you know, the thing that really fed me. And it was, you know, I was I was doing that probably about 10 close to 10 years before I even took a class. No kidding. Yeah. So, um oh. I would just get books and I would learn more and I kind of had my routine that I did and Right. and it, and something that, you know, I told a lot of people about at first like I gradually just didn't even talk about it. It was just like brushing my teeth and um but it gave me really a ground. I mean, it, that about 10 years later I did s- Eventually, start studying very intensely with the teacher Dharma Mitra, and um, but I'd kind of already been putting in a lot of miles, right? Which which gave it just like I don't know. It was just something that really um, helped me find my way through a lot of growing up and a lot of like figuring out how to be a person. Um, so it's interesting now that a lot of my life is really kind of formed around these practices because in the early days it was just like desperation, Yeah, <laughs> you know, I yeah. had just suffered a lot. I had lost a lot. And, um, that was kind of really what took me through it. So, um, I, you know, now I'm a really big, um, advocate for having some kind of practice, whether it's a yoga practice or sitting practice, my, my father's practice is like walking through the woods, you know, it can look a lot of different ways, but, um, I think it just gives us something that we, we don't find any other way. Like we figure out who, who we are just by the nature of kind of having to be with ourselves in that time um, that there's just not a lot of space for in the rest of the day, the rest of our lives. Culturally, it's pretty non-existent. So, um, yeah I'm a big <laughs> well <laughs> big, fan. big you're, fan
1: you're in good company because as you're sitting there, I can certainly relate you know our stories probably aren't the same, but I went through the ringer myself a number of times, and I had very destructive rituals. Each day was a ritual of drugs and alcohol and and jail cells and emergency rooms and and I had to create a new ritual, you know and and meditation for me became. That daily reprieve versus you know looking for the solution outside of myself, using my sitting practice to go back within, and I don't do Ashtanga yoga. I do other forms of yoga, but those many of my friends do, and one thing I've heard come up time and time and again is it's taught them to stay in that moment, you know, both off and on the mat when you feel like you can't be there for a moment longer, okay. and I find the same thing on the on the cushion you know sometimes yes all right i'll get up but more times than not it's okay and then the cool cross training is when i'm out there at like mile seven and i feel like i can't run another mile i remember the times i was sitting and i felt like i couldn't sit for another 10 or 20 minutes and i did so it's it's really incredible how these practices do help us learn do help us to heal do help us to truly go within um and i also started very much the same way as you Ida professor in school gave me a book and it completely turned my world upside down. And I made the local library, my second home. And then it was all Ram Das this and Mm -hmm. Chogim Trunkba that. And Sharon, of course. And, uh, and yeah, same with me many years before I started any kind of even semi formal Mm -hmm. training. Um, But it seems like you had even more formal training than I did. But the thing that's, that's interesting to me is so here's two of us, you know, we all kind of doing our thing. We were dedicated and then just what in December, there we are at the Ram Das retreat, like I'm there part of the podcast, you're there assisting Sharon and it's like, for me, I don't want to say these are my heroes, but these are like, my lifesavers in a way quite literally my lifesavers, and to, to have any to support them in that way and, and to almost peer, I think is a bit of a stretch but you know, to be at that level where I know you yeah. just had a workshop with Sharon, right? And mm-hmm. Yeah. How cool is that? <laughs>
2: yeah, to be in that like proximity is really, uh, yeah. it's really a big deal. And yeah. um, <clears throat> I mean, it, it's an interesting process. I have um, taught yoga for a long time now, but there's definitely, <clears throat> you know, there's an element like when I would be like teaching yoga as part of Krishanasa's retreats, that's like, I would often feel like, yeah, I'm really not qualified to be here. But (laughs) at the same time, I don't know if you've noticed this, like we're aging and we're getting older and like I'm coming up on 20 years of having done a daily practice. And so it's an interesting, it's an interesting moment because I think there uh, to be in such close proximity to our teachers is huge. And like, It's kind of, I mean, for me, I see it as like the next step in a process of, you know, in the West, there's not that, there's not that um, kind of strict lineage the way there is in the East. So we've kind of had to make it up as we go in terms of what does it look like to study and what does it look like to be someone's, um, you know, student in a more formal way and like, I think what happened in the summer is totally that it's like you get as close as you can and you hang out and you watch everything and you learn a ton. Yeah. And Like, yeah, maybe I'm on stage leading Kirtan or I'm teaching a yoga class, but really I'm just like learning.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah.
2: It's, it's, and I'm sure it's the same for you. Totally like the same. You're on stage, but you're just like,
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was It, it like jaw <laughs> on the ground, you know, like trying to take it all in. And, and, you know, because these are transmissions that these people have received from, you know, people even higher than them from from Maharaji to Ajahn Chah and and on and on it goes. It's just what an incredible lineage that's happening there. And then to be able to see Sharon and Ram Das kind of banter back and forth about soul, no soul. And, but, but at the end of the day, like learn so much from them and see the love and respect, respect Mm -hmm. they have for one another. Huge. So, before we get too far, I I did want to ask, um, because having that, we both spent many years kind of on our own paths, and I think that's the way a lot of people do it today. Not everyone, but a lot of people feel a little more comfortable. Kind of Andrew Harvey calls it the path of direct experience, or the pathless path, the one where, you know, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, what's happening for you in the moment. Not to say you can't have teachers or guides, but so you studied with um, Dharma Mitra and. Can you talk a little bit about the difference for you from going from that kind of learning on my own to now actually having some formal structure? What what shifted there for you? Or what changes did you notice?
2: Well, I think when you have a, f- a formal teacher, um, you know, you're cooking on high heat. Yeah. Like if before you were like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of I'm like sauteing some nice veggies. It's on low. <laughs> it kicks way up once yeah. you have a teacher. It's like. Um, it really accelerates the process. And I mean, the the beauty of having a teacher is it gives you a bigger container to really explore within. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they you can do more because I think um, that's one of the downfalls of having a pathless path is like you are kind of on your own. And um, there are some ways that, you know, when we really get into looking at our own stuff and looking at these patterns that we've been you know really f- formulating our sense of self through for so much of our life it's hard to deconstruct that if you don't have a bigger container to sure. kind of hold it together like I-, I think that's part of why you you hear about people really kind of falling apart mm-hmm. um And so when you have a teacher, they really kind of keep an eye on you and you can go a little further into those things and take them apart and be a mess. And you know, like I'm safe. Someone's keeping an eye on me. Um, they've been through this before and they're telling me like, no, don't take a left here, take a right. Mm -hmm. There's a big hole over there. You don't want to fall in that. It's not helpful to you. Yeah. So, um, that's definitely a big change. I mean, I, I think that it's it's almost, uh, in my mind, I think a different, it's a little different muscle because um, the muscle that you build when you don't have a teacher is like this really deep self-discipline and deep trust that you have to have of yourself and of, of your process. Um, like you really learn to rely on your own experiences. Like you, you're not waiting for someone else to tell you like, oh, this ice cream is really good. It's like you trust your own sense of it. Right. And you also learn how to trust when you, um, you know, kind of see through your own bullshit. It's yeah. like, so that's a, that's a really different process than when you're with a teacher and they're saying they're giving you that a little bit. So it's interesting. I think both are really valuable.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah,
2: I know when I, um, it was definitely a a kind of an awkward shift for me when I went from self practice to studying under Dharma. I mean, I just like, it was funny, like particular things, like, like I had just never practiced in a room with other people, you know, it was a very private, um, kind of sacred thing for me. Um, so (laughs) there were a lot of times when I was just like, I don't know what's going on here. Like, I just usually practice in my pajamas. Like what's happening? And it was like, you know that was kind of the beginning of really a culture cultural explosion of yoga and yeah. um eventually meditation that you know everybody's got an outfit now and they've got their fancy cushion and stuff, and um that had not been my <laughs> experience thus far, but um yeah, it's interesting i think I found for myself there's a little bit of a i kind of my trajectory has moved in very closely with the teacher and then kind of stepped back from that various reasons and move back into a place where I'm really working on my own for a while and mm-hmm. that's been really good for me I think actually mm-hmm. because um, I mean there the the great gift of being around a teacher is like you know you you receive all of their um, blessings, but it can also get really sticky where you become really attached and reliant on them for a sense of self, it's like you kind of transfer on to them instead of standing on your own two feet. So, um, I think, you know, those stories that Krishnadas tells about when Maharaji left the body and like, I think for a lot of those devotees, like they really thought their life was over yeah. completely. Yeah. And it was many, many years, like 10 years yeah. before a lot of them found their way and found a quality of connection with that presence that wasn't in an embodied form. So it, that's one of the kind of uh, interesting maturation parts of the process that happens, I think, that's really good for us when you like shift from having a teacher and not having a teacher, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I, you know, what I noticed in my own path is being a musician, um, I'm a self-taught musician, And part of me is glad about that because I like having developed my own style on the guitar and drums. But also I notice I've gone as far as I can go by teaching myself. And I know that had I taken the time to take lessons, I would definitely have excelled at both Um, more so. I'm okay. good enough to play in bands. I've recorded albums. And uh, and that's fine. Um, I've played drums at Kripalu and Yoga Journal Conference. So I can pass. You know, it's all right. (laughs) Though... I know I could be doing a lot better. Like, I'll watch uh, Arjuna on the tablas, and it's like, I tried to learn the tablas several years ago, and I just, I didn't have the time or patience for it. Yeah. But if I sat down with a teacher and dedicated myself, I'm sure I, I could have made it happen. But anyway, so I, I say that to say that I've noticed on the spiritual path as well, at times I have felt like I've just hit, you know, I've hit a wall, There a wall. There's nothing a book's going to tell me at this point. There's nothing the cushion's going to bring up for me. I need to go be a bit deeper. And just like you, that's where I've been, you know, blessed to have some teachers come into my life and, and really be held accountable to them, learn from them, receive various transmissions from them, you know, whatever the case may be in whatever lineage it is. Um, but then again, to take that when I feel moved to kind of digress back a little bit and that's kind of easy for me because I'm introverted by nature so that mm-hmm. when you were yeah. talking about being at a yoga class before, I was like, that's part of why I probably don't do don't... yoga. Like I'm not good with that stuff. <clears throat> um, yeah.
2: Introverts club. Totally. Yeah, yeah.
1: Let's unite separately at home. <laughs> but uh, so, anyways um, I wanted to speak in a yoga school, Brooklyn yoga school. Um, hmm? You opened that in 2010 that's a pretty bold move, considering yeah. it's in Brooklyn, and I'm assuming there's a lot of yoga schools out there. So, can you tell me a little bit about the inspiration behind that, and, and what's happening at Brooklyn okay. Yoga School?
2: Well, yeah, we're coming up this March is our seven year anniversary, which surprises me as much as anyone else. <laughs> um, I, I the inspiration really came um, because I wanted to make the teachings really accessible. Yeah. It's pretty simple for me and. And prior to that, I had been um, running my teacher's studio, Mitra studio, and running his teacher training. And um, I just, uh, I really, you know, that time yoga had really exploded. And in New York, it was just like everywhere. Yeah. But at the same time, a class could cost you like $25. Mm-hmm. So, um it just, like, it's very funny. There was a juice bar around the corner from Dharma Studio where we would all go and get our our goods. And um, I became quite friendly with all the guys that worked there who all really wanted to take class and none of whom could afford it. And it was those people that I just thought, like, well, that's that's just, like, so horrendous like to even get to a place where you want to do a practice but then you're limited because of your finances um just seemed like um the worst thing ever so (laughs) I uh I had the idea and it seemed you know like a good idea but also crazy I mean at that time my then husband and I were um you know like we were kind of studying yoga full time and we were teaching but we were pretty in debt and so i kind of just really said like all right universe or whatever you want to call it if you if you want me to open a donation yoga studio then like bring me what i need and i'll do the work and it was it was one of those moments in time where a lot of things came together far beyond how i could ever d- explain it um like it just really bypassed what i thought was like reasonable like within a couple months time we found a really beautiful space that was um a quarter of the rent of places in our neighborhood mm-hmm. um we raised the money that we needed very rapidly it was kind of like people just showed up out of the woodwork to help us like a friend from california came and worked on the build out for um couple of weeks for free. And the guy who did the renovations was like this amazing yogi who basically worked for free. It was all these things like that that came together. And uh, so it just kind of happened. And then um, I started teaching a lot. And uh, so I think, you know, it's interesting now the landscape has shifted a little bit. It was really um, unusual at that point to have a donation studio. There are a few places on the West Coast that had done it. Um, but actually, for donation yoga, the more studios that are around, the better, because it actually drives students to want to pay less money. So, um, yeah, it's been interesting. It's been an interesting process, because when I went in, I, my intention wasn't to like change... Um, the system at all. It was really just to make the yoga available, but I've encountered a lot of things along the way of having to figure out, like we had a vase at the start and people just put money in the vase, but then pretty soon money started disappearing out of the vase. (laughs) So it's been a real learning curve to understand um, in our culture, just how much we rely on, our culture to tell us the value of things as opposed yeah. to being able to figure it out for ourselves.
1: So is it, are you still running it as donationary based yeah. still yeah. good for you guys? Yeah. yeah.
2: Still donation. We do have a minimum now, um, which we really, you know, it, it slowly changed through the years. Like originally there was no minimum. Then there was a $5. Then there was a $10 and people, I would say 90% of the people give that exact amount Yeah, because, um, so it's interesting because it's just, I think it's just too foreign. It's yeah. just so embedded, like, except for maybe going to church, like it doesn't exist in our minds to consider like, oh, I made more money this week, so I want to pay more for my class or, or... anything like that. It's like people sort of make up their mind and they donate the same thing. But um, but it's interesting because as people deepen into the practice, their value of what it is to them changes too. So, um, yeah, so it's a pretty amazing project. And, uh, I know for myself personally, it was really, it was really interesting because when you teach a class and you think it's a really good class and then you realize like, Oh, I made 90 bucks on that class. Hmm. You really have to separate, um, the the meaning that you make out of monetarily what you make from something and also, you know, how someone reflects back to you their value of it for your own sense of self. And, and that was like a daily practice for me for years yeah. of sometimes you make a ton on a class and it's a really shitty, you know, you feel like, oh, that wasn't that great. I kind of fumbled and this and that one where you're just like everything came together and it was like yes everything yes (laughs) and it's like nobody has money that day so uh, personally that was really good for me and uh, hard but but kind of broke some of those constructs down for me through the years
1: I well not being a yoga teacher but I struggle as well with the financial end of things especially some of the conferences I'll speak at um, I have no say over what is being charged at them, you know? Um, however, it's, it's a really great opportunity to speak with some of these, I hate to use this term, but like a list spiritual teachers. Mm -hmm. But then I do look at the price of some of these tickets and I mean, I would never be able to afford to go to that as a, as a guest or a a participant. Um, so that's been (laughs) a struggle for me to work with. So what I try to do is whenever I do those and I've, I've kind of actually intentionally cut back on them because I don't always feel integrity my integrity doesn't always feel al- aligned with some of them yeah. but when I do them to try to offer like my own workshop like a side mm-hmm. you know so it's like mm-hmm. donationary basis so come and let's just sit and mm-hmm. talk mm-hmm. that's the only way I've been able to really make any semblance of peace around it um, and and when you do have publishers or you know doing a record label like you know people expect you to promote and do what you need to do to sell Mm -hmm. the books because these people are putting money into it it's such an interesting line to walk in this field and Mm -hmm. my integrity is first and foremost so i know that that's sometimes not made my publishers happy but at the end of the day like read my book like you can see in the words in those pages that i'm not going to do some of these things you can just tell by who i am yeah. So that's been a very good learning experience for yeah. me too. And something I know a lot of people struggle with because you will see certain teachers come and they are asking astronomical fees and I'm not, none of the teachers we've talked about yet, but there are other teachers. So it's just very hard to, when is enough enough, you know? And, yeah. and when for that teacher, are they, are they living beyond their means? I don't know that there's such a thing, but it's just a tricky thing to navigate. And I know also, and this leads into what I'm about to ask you, um, but a lot of younger people that I that I deal with, that I talk to at colleges or high schools or wherever, they have a hard time with the idea of spirituality because to them they do see it as what's being presented, you know, um, the recent uh, Time magazine or mm-hmm. some magazine of like mindfulness and a beautiful white woman with blonde <laughs> hair. And, and that's the image they really have of it. And it's like, yeah. I'm not into that pop shit yeah. and I don't blame no. them for it. So I'm part of my mission is trying to say, yeah, that's part of it. But just with, like with pop music, there's stuff beneath it that's really good. You just have to find it. So all that to say, I know something that you're passionate about talking about sometimes is spiritual bypassing. Oh, yeah. And I think this kind of segues into it. <laughs> so first of all, let's, why don't you tell me what you consider spiritual bypassing to be? And then feel free to just yeah. kind of go from there wherever you would like, because that's so important. Okay.
2: Yeah. Um, well, this is something I first encountered kind of in the yoga circles Mm -hmm. and, um, it kind of, I started to, it's funny, like I would start to hear people talking about things and, um, they would be talking about, let's say something that, um, was pretty challenging for them or let's say somebody was talking shit about them, something like that. And, um, you would start to, I'd start to hear a response to be like, well, that's okay. We're all one or it's okay. Everything's perfect. And it just kind of would like catch in me like, what? (laughs) What are you, what are you talking about? And uh, so it took me a long time to kind of uh, understand what was going on there. And that um, it's pretty interesting. It happens a lot. Um, I think part of why it happens a lot is that um, when students kind of come into these practices, they, you know, it's it's a natural part of the process to kind of take on like the, oh, I'm practicing yoga or oh, I'm practicing meditation, and, and they kind of adopt a persona around that. It's really. Um, it's like the genuine change hasn't taken place yet. They're just starting. So instead of it coming from the inside out, they kind of put it on from the outside in.
1: The ego has been spiritualized is how yes. I often like to refer to it. It's
2: a very good. Yeah. way to talk about it. Um, and like training teachers for a long time, it's like the dreaded yoga voice. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like you know, they're, they talk like a normal person when they're outside of the class, but then as soon as it starts, it's like, oh God. Yes so um yeah so it's a natural part of the process but I think something that kind of can get sticky and stay sticky for a long time is is really um taking some pretty big and pretty esoteric and pretty difficult concepts and like bringing them down onto the here and now level in a way that's um actually really unhealthy and really, um, you know, lots of times that kind of thing is brought in when we're uncomfortable and we don't want to deal with something. We don't want to see, let's say, our own greed and grasping. So instead of dealing with that, we just say like, everything's perfect, all one. Like, I love you and you love me so you can walk all over me, (laughs) you know, like that. Um, so it's interesting because it's like taking a universal concept and bringing it down on this level that um that actually when we don't have really clear boundaries and we don't have um you know if we if let's say someone is suffering a lot and they 've just lost a parent or a partner and you know i 'm sure you've had this happen where the response you get from someone is like everything's everything's okay, everything's perfect. And it just makes me want to punch them in the face. Absolutely. It's like really ignoring the needs of this level and like we're here and we're humans and we're suffering and we're going through a lot and we have to have certain things in place and just like washing over it with this kind of idealistic attitude that... um, And the truth is, you know, I think now is an interesting time because of everything that's happening with Trump and a lot of, you know, it's, it's a time where a lot of people are going to suffer. A lot of people will die. I mean, it's like a real thing that's happening. And, um, it's quite interesting to look into the like spiritual communities and see how they're responding because a lot of people are sitting back and saying like, well, this is our karma and everything is okay. And, and, um, Really whitewashing it and yeah. not giving the proper weight to people who whose lives are being destroyed by new policies or you know um, are, are coming back from visiting their mother in like the Middle East who was ill and are coming back to try to take care of their families and can't get in the country yeah. things like that so it's not something that gets talked about a lot, and um I just <laughs> if you've like met any of my students, they will all talk like regular people. Like I'm very adamant about just like we are real people here, and yeah. the changes that we're seeking are coming from the inside out. And like in classical yoga, there are the yamas and niyamas, and these are they're kind of like the um, brahmaviharas in um, in the Buddhist world, where it's like it's like these innate qualities that we gradually awaken through practice of kindness and compassion and, um, honesty, things like that. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's quite interesting to see still how many people take that bypass. They take the shortcut when they have the opportunity because it's easier and they don't want to sit in what's uncomfortable. They don't want to sit that extra two breaths that you were talking about before on the cushion. They just want the out. Yeah. Um, And that that's like still a really, um, it's an innate part of being human. So how do we deal with it? How, I mean, I ask myself that question a lot, like, how do I not take the easy out? How do I deal with what's happening here? How do I say the thing that's difficult for me to say? Um, And I think it is easy after a lot of years of practice to kind of fall asleep at the wheel. And like, yeah, I put in my time, but you stop looking at that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my spiel.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I, I couldn't agree uh, more with you on all of it. As you're, you're sharing that, I was thinking about a workshop I taught not too long ago. And a woman was sharing about how just the day before a car cut her off in traffic and instead of getting upset, she just sent them love and light. These are her exact words. Like I send you love and light and everything's okay. Mm-hmm. And I looked at her and I said, wow, you must be one of the most elated beings I have ever met. And I know it was a little snarky. I think I was probably a little tired that day. But I said to her, I'm like, because if that was me, I would have motherfucked that person with the middle finger. <laughs> and, and that's on a good day. You know, yeah, like yeah. I'm yeah, so yeah. far from perfect still, you know, like I mean, realistically, I get cut off sometimes. And, and on a good day, yes, I get frustrated. My I might tense my hands on the wheel, but I don't often honk the horn anymore i don't often flip people off but i still do sometimes it depends on where i'm at that day but i just remember when i heard that because she said it in such a like holy way and it's like you know but i i up by saying if that really honestly was your experience of it then that's beautiful and i'm happy for you but what i would ask you to do is really revisit that and really go back to that moment and go back to your gut and your chest and what if you can remember what was your body doing right then, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and, and this whole thing with Trump has been a wonderful practice. I mean, I love seeing, you know, uh, Mahar- or not Maharaji Ram Das with his new Trump, uh, picture on his puja. I'm not quite there yet myself, but yeah. I had to laugh when that got put up there. Um, it is a very trying time right now, a very scary time. What my editor who lives out in Red Hook Her son um, is African-American and he's already been on the receiving end of some racist rhetoric. And uh, as some of his other friends have out there, it's, and I mean, and this was within the first two weeks of him being elected. I remember I'm staying right now in this small town in Connecticut and um, people the day after the election had made a really beautiful sign uh, quoting, I think his name is Sean Walker, something like that. But it was a beautiful quote about how, We will stand with you, um, Muslim community, African-Americans, gay, lesbian community. You know, just all the people that are going to be affected by this. Really nice intention. They put it on the green downtown. And overnight, it was spray painted in big black letters, Trump 2016. Just like this ugly, you know, statement about how they feel about that sign. Since then, the beautiful thing is they redid the sign. And every Saturday... At a local coffee shop, they hold a vigil for an hour from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. With They redid the sign, and they stand there with candles and just in support of solidarity. Because this is a rural community. It's not like Texas rural or Mississippi rural. But, you know, I, I went to high school here. And I remember back then getting into fights standing up for my African-American friends or my gay friends. Because it was okay to drop the N-bomb or call people the F-word. And um, luckily today it's shifted more than it did then. However, it it well. It, what I think is obvious with the election is it went into hiding a bit more. And yeah. now it's coming out of the woodworks. So I know that that's something you've also discussed, um, fear in today's political climate. Yeah. As practitioners, because we are human beings too. I love reading, I know we have a mutual friend, Ethan Nickturn. Mm-hmm. I love seeing what he has to say on this. He's, he often posts really wonderful messages on Facebook that, you know, yes, we're practitioners, but what's right is right. We need to stand up. We need to, you know, fight back, resist. Um, and you know, practicing ahimsa as much as possible, of course. But you know, it's I feel like we still have a duty regardless. And I feel like to me it would be a spiritual bypass if I'm just gonna sit there and say, Ah, eh, like you said earlier, it's it's okay. karma. It's all one. <laughs> No, I'm not going to – It's that's not who I am. So what are, yeah. what are your thoughts on that and working with our practice and, and being some kind of a sacred activist, if you will, in today's climate?
2: I think that uh, for those of us who have the privilege of being able to have a practice, mm. we carry a great responsibility because, you know, let's face it, like you and I are very privileged individuals Couldn't that we – have all of the resources our lives are set up in such a way like let alone what who we get to hang out with but um that we're you know we're the upper class we're we're, it doesn't get better than what you and i have encountered even though we have faced difficulty in our lives like we have come in with great (laughs) great privilege Yeah. yeah so i think it's important to um understand the gravity of that in the culture because um, the people who carry the most privilege, like have a freedom to do certain things with their time and energy that, you know, the reality is a lot of people just don't have because they're working, you know, minimum wage jobs, which don't make them enough money to get their kids food, anything like that. I mean, um, but I think one of the marked um you know signs of privilege is like we don't we don't even realize we have that privilege. Mm. So it's interesting, one of the things that Sharon is really adamant about is voting. And uh if you've ever met her and <laughs> talked about anything like political, she just talks a lot about voting. And she has personally like brought so many people who haven 't voted before into the vote because she says like okay that 's fine if you live in a state that is in a line with you know what you believe in, but you have to vote for the people who who can 't vote and whose voices aren 't heard, so I think that 's really similar for practice mm-hmm. it 's like we have to practice as like a duty to people who like who don 't have this privilege who don 't have the time who are so like burdened with their life circumstances that they never have a second to even consider, um, you know, looking at these inner qualities within us. Um, so more and more I feel that weight and I feel there's a really interesting crossover between, um, internal transformation and external transformation. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about the inherent bias right now because of, you know, how interesting it is that so many people in the country um, elected Trump and he's someone who really, um, you know, like isn't the good kid in the the kindergarten room. Like (laughs) he's not the one who's like, Um, following the rules, he's kind of this like bad boy. And um, I think within us, we all have that element. We all have a version of that that's um, really ours to reckon with. And uh, it's quite, you know, I've come across a lot of people who their experience of what's happening right now is they find it totally unacceptable what he does. And they just like it's it's a level of um, unacceptability that's like he doesn't, he's not even deserving of love or any of those things. He's just a monster. And it's interesting because I th- my sense is that the people who respond that way probably also haven't faced that part of themselves on the inner mm-hmm. um, and that we all carry, um, you know, very deeply held um, beliefs that are, in a lot of ways, really hateful and exclusive. And, and, you know, when you look at these figures in history that have done horrendous things, like, it's very tricky to understand what to do with them. Like, people who do the most uh, atrocious crimes and... Are you know just hatred embodied like it's a very interesting thing to look at them and look at those aspects of ourselves that are really full of hatred and are really full of you know like we can't bring ourselves to love someone who who does something like that because they don't deserve it and I don't think there's like a singular right answer it's just grappling with that though and, that, and we grap- as we grapple with our own bias and inherent bias we start to have a little more ground to do it in the world. So one thing that was kind of interesting for me, I recently shared this thing on Facebook, which was a story about growing up in Idaho and that my mom worked with uh, resettling refugees growing up. And uh, we, it was very common in our house to have a family or individual living with us for a month period of time because in Idaho, since there weren't existing communities, you couldn't just kind of bring in a family from Ethiopia and like shuttle them into the existing Ethiopian community. There just wasn't one. So they would come and um, these families had been mostly extreme victims of persecution. You know, they were coming from Uh, refugee camps that, I mean, it was just like, it was the worst of the worst, what they had suffered. And uh, they would live with us for a month. And um, they predominantly knew no English. My sister and I would teach the kids English or the women, and um, they would have enough time to kind of get acclimated, and then they'd be placed into their own home. So this meant, like, a pretty unusual setup for young childhood, um, I think I was probably maybe five or six when she moved into that line of work Mm. and, um, as a, like a white upper class person, you know, and a kid no less that was like really selfish and just wanted, you know, like my whatever I, you know, I was, uh, it was really interesting to interface with this reality. And that some people, I immediately had a really strong aversion to. I didn't like the way they smelled. I didn't like the way they looked. It was so foreign. I just, I just like, had this feeling. But I had to live with them for a month. I had to teach those kids English. And it was really interesting. I think now as an adult, I I look back on that period of time and value it a lot because as a child, it just, like, it made me have to deal with like, Oh, I don't like that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think we all have that. Like we as adults, we all are like, yeah, I don't like that. I would never do that. And it just, it's like, we don't ever really look at it and we find it really unacceptable. Um, And that's when that spiritual bypass happens. It's like, we can't look at that thing in ourselves. We can't look at our entitlement or our greed or our version or that like, actually we're more drawn to look at the picture of the beautiful child than the one that we deem ugly. Yeah. Um, But practice is an interesting thing. Like practice is all about helping us and giving us a framework to sit in things that are uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and get comfortable being uncomfortable and like opening up this world of options that, we can choose instead of just having that like hard reaction and like, Oh God, I don't know. I would never do that to someone. I would never cut them off. I would never say that. I would never wear that coat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, Oh God, that coat is so ugly. <laughs> like, I never wear that. It's like July. Why would you wear that? You know, it's like, it's a range of things that are really light like that. And then things that are massive that are just like so deeply embedded in us that um, practice slowly gives us a forum to look at. So it is an incredible time to be practicing right now because it's so triggering what's happening. And and it's hard, too. I mean, I see a lot of people who are activists that are, you know, it's like they can't even enjoy a cup of coffee right now because they feel so guilty that, you know... They can enjoy life. So it's interesting because it does come in a lot of different forms. And I think it takes a certain quality of honesty and bravery in ourselves to be able to really look at like what's going on in here and, uh, and be okay with all of it and make room for all of it and accept all of it. And that makes then the work on the outer really different because we see someone like Donald Trump and instead of, Um, just shutting it down, we think, like, okay, well, he's probably miserable. It doesn't mean that what he's doing is okay. Right. But it it softens it a little bit, and it gives some space to be able to understand, like, he's a person too, and he um, went through his life experiences to become who he is, and he still wants to be happy. He's probably flailing right now, and... um, it was interesting, last night we had a gathering for the uh, Sharon's Real Happiness Meditation Challenge, and this lovely teacher, Sebenay, came, and uh, it was a whole evening about loving kindness, and one of the things she said was that when George W. was elected, she was uh, she started doing this practice because she was so triggered by him. And she did this practice for quite a while that she every day would sit and imagine George W.'s life from birth, starting with him being in Barbara Bush's womb, (laughs) to like all of the circumstances that led him to be who he is as a person. And she said when she did that, she realized like if I had gone through that, like I would be him, like that we are the product of, you know, our environments and and I think that's a really interesting insight because we are really the product of what we came through. And you and I are lucky enough to have found our way here. But there are a lot of people who are, you know, haven't found their way yet to a, a compassionate way of life or a way of life that's more oriented around the quality of being instead of doing. Right. And are miserable
1: and I, I, I agree with what your friend's saying. You know, I look at your life, my life, anyone's life. I, I do think we get to a certain stage, as long as we have the mental capacity at some point, um, where we need to, and I'm not saying your friend was saying Bush was a victim, but to take the power back, so to speak, you know, like yeah. as an adult, there's a line from this great old hip hop band, The Far Side. I love it. It's they just say, "There comes a time in every man's life when he has to handle shit upon his own, man yeah. or woman." And I couldn't agree more with that. <laughs> to me, that's saying you got to get to a point yeah. where you're an adult and yeah. you got to adult. You know, so mm-hmm. th- you know we are very lucky that we've gotten to that point. And there are people that will go to their graves who will never adult. You know, and they did have the mental capacity to, whether they took on a victim mentality or whether they just stuck their head in the sand for whatever reason. They just, they kind of coasted through and, and that was their life this time around with Trump. um, You know, something that helps me in that regard on a good day is I I'm a fan of shadow work practice. And part of that to me, a very simple practice is anytime I feel any kind of negativity coming out towards someone else, and it can be positivity too.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a
1: projection of what's going on in me, yeah. you know? So using Trump as the example, because he's, he's such an easy example to use. And that's not to say that underneath all of it, and I'll say it, he's a piece of shit. I'm sorry, he is. That said, my shadow stuff with him is, I look at him and part of me doesn't like him because he's a terrible public speaker. And I fear that at times I don't speak well when I'm giving a talk. And so that's part of me projecting my stuff on him. Or I look at him and he's overweight, unhealthy. And I have struggled with my weight in my life. And I recognize I'm projecting more of my stuff onto disliking him. Mm -hmm. A friend helped me with a wonderful practice. She said, try to look at him beyond just Trump, but as a seven-year-old boy housed inside that body. A scared, hurt seven-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. And on a good day, that I find really does help because I can see through that rough exterior. And I know saying he's a piece of shit is a really big, bold, unspiritual thing to say, but some people in life... <laughs> or let me say this. He's acting like a piece of shit right now. Maybe he gets it together. I shouldn't make such a, you know, a, a dead-end statement, but right now he's acting like a piece of shit. And I, I stand by that. Tomorrow, maybe he won't. I'm guessing he probably will, but he is, is not, he's not setting a good example. He's not a good leader. He's just, he's affecting a lot of people's lives that I care about in a very negative way. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do take that personally.
2: <clears throat> well, and I think it's interesting to um, really look at the point of having a practice because it's not to get to a place where it's like, oh, everything you do is fine and I accept it all it's really about having a clear view and it's an interesting mix of being able to see, um, like see clearly and, and have more space to make choices for action that's forward leading. And I love that idea of like onward leading, um, because that's a really different qualifier than like right or wrong action. But, um, when i think about let's say coming to take a look at how i respond to trump or not um i think there's a way to hold it where he's held really accountable for what he does because he is a person who holds great power now and we are all accountable for what we do and say and at the same time i recognize he is a person and he's suffering and he holds that same desire to be happy, he might be doing a horrendous job of enacting that. And he's, but he's also someone who's doing the best that he can given his circumstances. So it's a, that's where I think the tricky part of not doing a spiritual bypass is hard because it's holding on one side it's really fucked up what he's doing and it's unacceptable and I'm going to fight it and I'm going to go out and I'm going to protest and I'm going to do all these things. And he's a human and he also deserves to be happy. And God knows if he was happy, he wouldn't be doing all that shit. Yes. So it's, it's hard though, because I think, um, for a lot of us, uh, when we first kind of visit this concept of everyone counts and everyone matters and everyone wants to be happy, we think that that automatically means that they can do anything and it's okay. That's um, the scary part of the spiritual bypass. We think like, well, if I love everyone, then I'm going to get really soft and weak and people will walk all over me. But and this is why I love Sharon, Yeah. because um, she says you can love someone and not like them.
1: Yeah, agreed. And so yeah.
2: I can I can send love and well wishes to Trump and I can really find what he does completely unacceptable. And a lot of times that sensibility is not uh, it's just something we feel and it's something that evolves over time um, where. It's this really delicate balance and, and I would say that's true for the parts of myself that I still find really frustrating and really like, well, it's not okay to like whatever when I get cut off, it's like I've learned that I, you know, like if that response comes up, that's just like, fuck you, buddy. <laughs> um, it's like, that's not how I want to show up in the world. So Agreed, there's, yeah. like, leaving some space to, like, okay, well, that still exists in me. I can still be a total asshole yep. and say shitty things to people and be horrible. And, okay, I'm trying to do this other thing at the same yeah. time. So it's not just, like, repressing it so much that you're, like, you've swung to the other side. Right. <laughs> like, no, I love you. It's, it's, there's a realness to it of, like, okay, I see where I'm at. And it's OK. And it's also not OK. Like, I'm not going to act on it. And if I yes. do, I've got to, like, really follow up and be like, you know, here comes you've got to own what you've done and take responsibility for it and make amends and all of that.
1: I know all too well about that. Yeah. <laughs> on the Trump thing, though, I, let me say this, is that one of the great teachings from Maharaji that I've always held near and dear is he said, never throw someone out of your heart. Doesn't mean you have to have them close in your life, but don't throw them out of your heart. And I would say that I've not thrown Trump out of my heart. I would also say when I sit here and say he's a piece of shit, I will own the fact that that's ego Chris making an ego statement about ego Donald Trump. And if we're going to get non dualistic about it, underneath that, there's no such thing as any of it. You know, at, at the ultimate level of reality, if we're speaking in Buddhist terms, it, not to spiritual bypass, but quite literally, it is one movement, it is one dance of life that we're just all an extension of, including me, you, and Trump himself. Yeah. Then the egos get involved, and, and that's part of it, too. But So I recognize both sides, that that's coming from the relative form, you know, Chris being unskillful in this moment. Yeah. But Chris owns it, and <laughs> he just speaks his truth as best he can. And uh, And today I do feel like he is a piece of shit. I also understand he's a human who wants to feel peace and i wish him that peace i sincerely do because i know it would make him a more effective and better leader i don't think he's doing the best job that he can um i think i think we d- we can leave it at that because <laughs> this conversation can just go on and on and i know i know we're already an hour but before we end um i did want to offer you the floor if there is anything we did not get to cover lily that you wanted to talk about or if there's any events or anything at all or if nothing that's cool too but whatever whatever you want
2: um well it's interesting i think uh i think we're in such a interesting time um where i've really been relying deeply on my practice lately because um you know i i just think it's so um after you know now i almost i just recently realized that it's almost been twenty years that I've been practicing, which like shocked me because in my mind, I'm still like twelve years old.
1: <laughs> see, I always call myself an eleven year old so i'm right yeah yeah with you. yeah
2: totally yeah. but um I think that it's uh it's really interesting to look at. Kind of when I first started doing a practice, I think I had really unrealistic ideas of what it was actually going to do for me. I thought I was going to become this other person or this person that didn't get angry or didn't um, suffer. You know, I wanted a way out of that. Um, So I think for a lot of people, when they start doing a practice, like that's really what they're hoping for. They just like, they don't want to be themselves anymore. They don't want to feel the like the self-loathing or just the like, it's so overwhelming what we come in with. Um, but I have learned through the years that you, you, you can find something quite enormous in practice, which is, a. A, more of a spaciousness around all of that. Mm. So when it comes to someone like Trump and knowing what to do and how to do it, it's like there can be a lot of space around that and really um, making much more of a choice of like, who do I want to be here and what's important to me and that that's an evolution. You know, who, what, how I might have responded to this experience five years ago is already really different from how I respond to it today and so it's like the practice gives you that space but then you can really stay deeply connected to like what's lily all about like what's really important to me and how do I want to show up continuously in this situation and this situation and this situation and what is right action to me in that like and and really then living a life where there's this deep alignment between what's valuable to me and what feels really important and how I manifest that in the world. Um, Because often there is that disconnect. That's when, you know, that's when I think there is um, just a lot. I think it leads to a lot more suffering because, um, you know, in a moment like this, you just don't feel empowered to do anything. You don't know what to do. You don't even know what's important to you and how to act on that. So it's like the practice gives you space to really hone in on it, and then you move from that. You live from that. You live in this way that, um, you know, it's like, yeah, we don't win the battle always, but we we went for it, and we lived in this way that was... Um, that feels really good to us. And that even though there's still tremendous suffering in the world, we can go to bed at night and feel like, yeah, that was good. This was a good day. Like I really worked with my demons today and I really did it in a loving way. And I really um, moved out into the world in a way that was like spot on with like how I think we can be as humans, you know, like that. And so I'm still me and there's still all the like crazy lily stuff going on. But, um, it's, it's been a pretty significant shift from how I used to operate. And I think that's accessible for everyone who does practice and it's such a game changer. And, uh, so, you know, it seems so small, like, oh, I'm just going to sit down and follow my breath or I'm just going to do triangle pose, but it's so enormous. Like what you can get from that and mm-hmm. how it, you know, what it offers is just massive. So yeah. that's my final pitch. I like it.
1: <laughs> show up and do the work. Yeah. <laughs> As best you can each day. That's been uh, very important for me, too. So, Lily, thank you again so much for your time. I had so much more I wanted to get into with you. So we'll just have to have you back on the show soon. Again. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll <laughs> But uh, Lily And again, whether you are watching or listening to this, just scroll down a little bit wherever you are and you'll see the link to Lily's website and you could find out all things Lily from there on. Thanks, Lily. Awesome.
2: Thank you and have a great day. You Take do
1: care. the same.
2: OK, bye.